And uh, it's good to see you all, like we all our different experiences and backgrounds that we have, uh, family in common. Um, and every now and again, as a church, and, and, and I've certainly had this in different areas that I've pastored in, God has been gracious and given uh, to the house, fathers of the house, people who have given years and years of dedicated service and prayer and enthusiasm and and support and championing, and uh, and I just want to I just want to take a minute to recognise one of our champions, one of the fathers of the house, and that's David Marshall. It's so good to see you, my friend. Um, David and Maureen have been faithful servants to the South and Willow Park for years and years, longer than they probably care to admit. But um, it's, it's, I know the effort, because David's had a bit of a rough few months, and uh, Maureen's been caring and looking after him, and, and yet fully involved in the South Art Project and everything else. We appreciate you guys. It's so good to see you. And, uh, and I'm sure that David will make his every effort to make sure he says hello to everybody, because that's pretty much what his spiritual gifting has been, especially uh, chasing after people with Garden Lake brochures. And we love you, my friend. We're glad that you're here. Um, it's also really good to see so many of our returning uh, uh, young adults who have come back from school. Uh, I see Adam and Alex and Bethany. And who else we got yet? Yeah, we've got Maya. Can I see anybody else? Who, who am I missing? Is, uh, is, I've seen the Van Steinbergs. I'm not sure whether Cole is here or Elizabeth, Joseph and Evelyn. Elizabeth here? I'm just going to not admit anything. Okay, fair enough. Well, it's good to see you guys. I um, love that you've, uh, you've come back to the house. It's good. Okay, Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles, then please turn to Romans chapter 8. If you've got your device, turn it on. Get ready to go. I have been looking forward to preaching on this particular group of verses since we started Romans. This is part 7, I think, uh, as we've been working our way through. And it really addresses one of the most troubling questions that the culture has, uh, that, uh, and it's a good question, and it's a question that is often used to disprove the existence of God, which is this, uh, essentially, is how can a loving God let whatever fill that gap happen? How can a loving God let suffering happen? How can a loving God let this situation happen? And, and it can be on a global scale, it can be on a country scale, it can be on a personal scale, and, and that question is used to leverage uh, the, the argument there can't be a God because if there was a God, how could this bad thing happen? It's a poor, logical, philosophical argument on so many different levels. You know, essentially, if the first thing you do is you take God out of the situation, let's say God doesn't exist, does it make the situation any better or does it make the situation disappear? Of, of course not. And so it really isn't used effectively by people who are well studied as an argument against God But it's still a good question. How can a loving, merciful, kind, ultimate God allow the difficult, challenging, hard situations happen in our lives? And and these these verses really slam into that question. Um, And this particular verse I'm going to read to you now, we're going to camp out on for a few minutes. Uh, Verse 28 on Romans chapter 8 says this, And we know, okay, let's just stop there. And we know, what is Paul referring to? He's referring to the previous, especially seven or eight verses, starting at verse 14 especially. He's, he's, he's starting there and saying, look, this is, this is what you know as a Christian. 
If you are a Christian this morning, then these are the things that Paul has just been telling us. First of all, we're led by the Spirit of God. Secondly, we're chosen. This is pretty much verse 14, verse 15, verse 16, working through that we're led by the Spirit of God. We're chosen by God. We're reminded of God's truth constantly. Then he just just shows us that what it is that we have to look forward to that is incomparable in comparison compared to our present sufferings, he says. Look, this is who you have to look forward to as a Christian, this future glory. And he camps out there for a little while and he describes that our sufferings compared to what God has prepared for us, this new heaven and new earth. And I've said that as a church, we, uh, uh, not just our church, but Christendom has done a poor job of presenting what life should be like to our youth and young adults, what Christianity should be like. It should be this enthusiastic, charge-filled adventure that we are fighting for a cause, something to give our life to. And then we've done a poor job of describing what heaven is like. Heaven is not this bright, white, flying, naked baby angels singing for the rest of eternity. Sounds like a nightmare to me. That, That would just be awful. That is not what we have promised to us. What we have promised to us is a new heaven, new earth, no more sickness, no more sorrow, complete joy, no more death. This earth charged up, amped up, being more beautiful with no sin. That is what we have to look forward to as a Christian. That's what he's referring when he says, and we know. So my very first question is, friend, listen, do you know? Do you know that to be the truth of your life? Do you know that that to be the orientation of your life? Is that what you place your decisions, your thoughts, your ambitions, your goals upon? Or are you placing your ambitions and your, your, you are uh, making something that is temporal, making that ultimate, whether it be money or career or goals or beauty or family or marriage, whatever it might be. If you are camping out on that as your ultimate, then what is it that you ultimately are looking forward to? Because those things have a tendency to let us down. Whereas the God who has presented this incredible truth that in Jesus Christ there is no condemnation, Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is a weighty verse. Because if you just think about it for a minute, the reality of this verse is saying that God has this incredible ability of turning our circumstances into good. Our circumstances into good. You see, you either, you, you, you really, are, there are two camps. You either truly believe that God is in complete control in the good times and the bad, that he knows the beginning to the end, that nothing is a surprise to him. You either believe that or the other side of it is that God is not in control, that things are a surprise to him and he's hands off. Now, if I'm going to stand in the middle and just think logically and philosophically for a second, not just spiritually, that one scares the living daylights out of me because I am awful at making good decisions. I'm terrible at it. This one gives me this incredible security blanket that even though I think I might be in control, that ultimately God is in control. Now, so listen up. We don't like this as a culture because we like the idea of us being in control. We don't like it because we don't like the idea of God uh, that, that somehow God is controlling all the events that are around. We don't like that because we've been drummed into our thinking that you are the center of you and your universe. You, 
universe. You are the center and your decisions have profound effects. So, uh, so here's, here's the challenge with that. The Harvard professor, uh, Robert Merton, who was one of the founding fathers of modern-day sociology, came up with this, this, uh, this, le- this thinking, if you like, called unintended consequences. This is basically what this means. It says this, quote, The outcome of our actions have unintended consequences that are outside of our ability to control and predict. In other words, that which you think is going to happen is likely not going to happen the way that you think it's going to happen. It's outside of our control and our ability. And, and so what we try and do is try and control our present moment in the hope that somehow we're going to have future control of what might happen. And, and what tends to happen, he found, is that the opposite is true. So an example of this, we were, we were laughing about this in our community group this week. We talked about toddlers and little babies and, and how we want to kind of keep them protected and don't touch that and don't look at that and certainly don't eat that and you know and we control so the unintended consequence of that is actually their immune system drops um so i can think of when i was like three or four i remember vividly the first time that my mum washed my mouth out with soap how many of you had that happen to you yeah uh, it's 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 true it's certainly a british thing you 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 don't sit on the bottom step you, you wake up in ER with a bar of soap sticking out of your mouth. That, that, that's, that's what discipline was like when I was a little guy. And, and, and the reason, the first time I remember having my mouth washed out with soap, literally, my mom, and if you met my mom, she, come, she comes quite regularly. She's like five foot nothing and the sweetest, lovely lady. But I'd been picking chewing gum off the sidewalk and eating it. Now, okay, now you... The unintended consequence of that, the unintended benefit of that, is my immune system probably is way higher than those of you who are crazy enough not to do that. So the parent point this morning is just let your kids eat whatever they want. Just have at it because their immune system is going to be high. So the unintended consequence of protection is actually the opposite. That's basically what the philosophy is. So what's that got to do with us? It's, It's this. Us seeking the immediate good in our lives, often means that we miss the ultimate good that God has. See, in jo- Joseph, in Genesis uh, 50, verse 20, he says this to his brothers, As for you, this will all come make sense as I go, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So, the evil, the bad thing, the, the awful thing that Joseph went through, the unintended consequence, the benefit, the ultimate good was that thousands of people's lives were saved. That's the Old Testament version of all things work together for good for those who are called by God's purpose. That God has this ability of taking whatever we're going through and redeeming it into an ultimate good and an ultimate benefit. And us trying to control our lives ultimately doesn't work because the reality is there are millions of consequences to every decision we make and we are incapable of controlling them all. For those of you who are control freaks, you know who you are. I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up, but you know who you are. You prove to yourself every day that even though you want to be in control, ultimately life has a higher say. And I would say that God has a higher say of life itself, which is why if you take God out of the equation, it scares the living daylights out of me because then, what then? Where, where are we left then? See, this verse disrupts our thinking 
But Glenn, what about free will? I just say, first of all, Christians get far more het up, uh, get more, what's the Canadian, um, upset. Canadians get far more upset, not Canadians, Christians get far more upset about free will than actually non-Christian scientists, philosophers thinking, because it's been laid to rest for many, many years. Even Stephen Hawking wrote about this. That free will really is just a figment of our imagination because they would say that every decision we make is a result of our environment that we've been brought up on or our experiences. As a Christian, we would say that every decision that you make is actually a result of your experiences, your environment, and a, and a heart that is away from God. So I'll let you just think about it. I'm not going to jump into that too much, but the reality is we think we're in control. And our our society reminds us that we're in control all the time, but the reality is, is that we're not. And so if we really lived in this verse, we could live life with an open hands and swing at life so hard, we could make incredibly bold decisions. And this verse, if we take it for face value, it says all things work together for good for, the, to, uh, for those who are called to his purposes. So God is this sovereign God of the unintended consequences, the unintended benefit, the God of the ultimate good. That's what we're going to unpack for a few minutes this morning. So this is a big verse, and and, and I'm actually going to be doing three verses this morning, so we're going to go pretty quick. But all I want to do is paint this picture that we think we're in control, but if we sit just back for a second and get real with ourselves, we understand that there are millions of things that we are not in control of. So what then? Would we prefer a God who is in control and ultimately brings about unintended benefit? Or would you prefer to camp out on the area that actually, no, it is all down to you. All the best, my friend. Your children's lives, all down to you. That is the scariest thing, isn't it? And it was five minutes ago, it feels like, that we were picking out little toddler shoes for one of our kids. This morning, I'm borrowing his shoes. I texted him this morning, I went, can I borrow your boots? He was like, sure. What's scary is my 12-year-old, I can borrow his shoes as well. <laughs> our children, if it was all down to me, oh, man, that's scary, is it not? If everything in life was down to you and your ability to make good decisions and then control them, I much prefer a God who's in control. That's what this verse is about. It's a beautiful thing. Now, here's what's going to happen. This is going to smack into some of your thinking so hard. You're going to go, no, 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 I'm in control. I'm in control. I'm in control. Because that is what we're communicated all the time. This verse is going to be completely contrary to that. So the argument that's going inside your mind or your heart and spirit is not an argument against me. It's against this verse. So Take it up with God in prayer. Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So this is what the verse is saying. Go ahead and plan. That's a good thing. Don't be like, I'm just not going to do anything. I'm just going to let God. No, that's ridiculous. We've got brains. We've got physicality. We've got the ability to make good decisions and bad decisions. You should go and go plan. That planning is good. Strategy is good. But just be aware that God has an ability to take our best plans and actually change them. So, uh, 2003, we felt a strong call to come to Canada. And I'd been offered a job uh, in, uh, in Vancouver as a director in an independent school. So I came over and we were like, this is going to be great. And you know what? There was a plan. 
not just my plan, the, the independent school I worked for had a plan for me as well. And it was like, this is going to be great. Within like six months, I realized that the plan that we were counting on, I'd just moved my family for, was actually starting to break apart. I could not have predicted that God's unintended consequence, his ultimate good, his unintended benefit for me, was that I would end up here this morning, 15 years later, preaching the good news to you wonderful people. See, God, best laid plans, beautiful thing. Trust in God and lock your car, right? And lots of you have heard me say that. You should lock your car. Don't be an idiot. Plan. But trust in God as well. It's, it's, it's both things. That's why it says in Philippians 2 verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So here's God's part. God gives you the salvation. Now you've got to work it out. God gives you the treadmill. Now you've got to get on it. Well, that's a great treadmill. Yeah, you've actually got to work hard. So trust in God, but lock your car. Make some plans, but hold with an open hand. If it be his will. So yeah, we're going to do that, God willing. We're going to do it. But you see, the way that God's sovereignty and our free will and our choice combine is a mystery that Christians get awfully upset about. God doesn't seem to have any problem with this. In fact, the people that this book was written to wouldn't have had any problem. We want or. It's either down to us or down to God. Which one is it, Glenn? Well, no, it's and. It's both. Let's live in that tension. Let's stop trying to take mystery out of Christianity. Christianity is mysterious. And let's live in that beauty that you can make your best laid plans. Wonderful. But hold them with an open hand and say as if the Lord wills. Because he has an ultimate good that we may not be aware of right now. That makes me come out at life swinging. I, I can do incredible things. Let's try it. It may be that God is with me. It might not be. Let's try this thing. But here's the challenge with it. You know that saying, time will tell? Sometimes time won't tell. So you can be going through a challenge and a difficulty and a, a circumstance right now that breaks your heart and the heart of the loved ones around you. And your, lots of your prayers start with, why God? And we have this thought that somehow the ultimate good is going to be shown to us in this lifetime. And... And it may not. Job went through all that he went through. All the horrendous circumstances. And at the end, God gives him this incredible uh, chapters full of statements as to who God is. Not once did God tell Job why he had gone through what he had gone through. But we have this thought that somehow we deserve to know why, whereas God has this ultimate good that ultimately is also mysterious that we may never find out why this side of eternity. Think about you sharing your faith with somebody, somebody you've shared your faith with lots of times, maybe somebody you've thought about sharing your faith with. This verse gives you the ultimate comfort that God is in control All we need to do is come out swinging. Sow the seed and he will be the one that brings the fruit. He will be the one that brings the ultimate good. He will be the one that brings the ultimate benefit, not you. All we have to do is be obedient and and speak and share and, and spend time and love on our neighbors and serve and look for ways for us to be obedient. Sow those seeds and see God's steps. It could be years later. 
You know, you may not actually have the joy of seeing that person you're sharing the gospel with come to know Jesus. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with that son or daughter who seems like a million miles away from God? Are you okay with the possibility that you may never see the ultimate good? You may never see the ultimate, like, but Glenn, my kids, what? Yeah, but let's just hold our kids with an open hand. Isn't it not better as a parent to say, God, these kids are yours. They're, they're, they're yours to do whatever you want. And we trust that this verse be true. And Father, forgive me for trying to control them. Let's just hold our hands open on our life. Is that not more freeing? Now, do you have to fight for it? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, because kids make dumb decisions. Right? They do. All the time. If I make dumb decisions, then, you know, for sure. So holding that with an open hand. This is why we need to camp out in verses like this. We need to trust the truth of this verse. Sow the seeds. Sow into. Look for opportunity to serve. Look for opportunities to guide. Look for opportunities to plan. Sow the seed. And then let God take the step. Let God bring the ultimate good. You cannot engineer the ultimate good. It doesn't work that way. We make decisions about what we think will bring immediate good. Well, God is always thinking of the ultimate good. Immediate good, ultimate good. We look at our perspective and go, why isn't God doing what I think is best? Our perspective, our judgment on what we see is so limited. I've shared this story before, but as a, uh, as a 13, 14-year-old, I took, I'll, I'll do the shortened version, I took our... Uh, Great Dane Monty, who was our beautiful, just magnificent dog, who was completely insane off the leash. You weren't meant to set him off the leash because they have heart problems. But at being a 13-year-old, I know better than that. Let him off the leash, off he goes. And I just remember I was walking along and he was having the best time. He was just galloping back and forth. thing with Monty, he was completely uncoordinated. Has any of you had a Great Dane? They're all legs and no brain. They're just... They're all over the place. Scooby-Doo is a brilliant example of what a Great Dane is like. And they kind of, they run off and they're just having a great time. Well, Monty reappeared out of some undergrowth on this particular walk with a log in his mouth. And, and uh, those of you who heard me say this story before, and he was having a great time throwing this log around. And it turned out that the log wasn't a log. It turned out it was a small dog that he picked up in the undergrowth. And so from my perspective, he's having a great time. This is the immediate good, but the ultimate good was not there. And the guy who owned the dog came out from underneath the growth, and he was not happy, and he said things that I'm not going to say in church because they're not godly. But my perspective on that situation was completely off, and I was making decisions on the back of my perspective. See, what I think is immediate good oftentimes is not. And if you don't know Jesus, you are relying on what your perspective is, on your immediate good, and on your children's immediate good, and on your business's immediate good, family, friends, circumstances. You are relying on your immediate perspective, your immediate good, and making, trying to control, and so that when things go wrong, you then start blaming yourself because you've done a poor job, or, more likely, you start blaming everybody else, or, even more likely, God himself. Well, why would God allow this to happen? People can stray a long way from God because they're focusing on the immediate good. Whereas Christians, we are called not to focus on the immediate good. We're called to focus on the ultimate good. And the ultimate good is that God has a plan. He knows what he's doing. And it's an unintended benefit. 
So when your children make poor decisions, when your co-workers make poor decisions, when your friends or family make poor decisions, you can hold it with an open hand and go, God, I don't understand. There doesn't seem to be any immediate good, but I'm trusting in your ultimate good in this situation. According to your verse, verse 28 says, for all things work together for good. But this causes me, being a little bit cynical, to ask the question, well, what do you mean by good? What do you mean by good? See, God's ultimate good is actually described in the next verse, Romans chapter uh, 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among brothers. Oh, I love one of the verses in the middle of that. Uh, It's the uh, predestined. Oh, we get very upset. We get really upset about predestination. The thought that, hang on a second that God is actually in control of me. Not sure whether I like that. I like the word for new historically, at least within the last hundred years or so, because we think, well, God looks down the passage of time and makes his decisions based on our decisions, and then he decides. But then ultimately that still means that God is making a decision, does it not? So you can't actually escape the fact. Does that make sense? For new, that it's the idea that God looks down the passage of time, and, well, Glenn's making that decision, so I'm going to predestine that he makes that decision. What? Because that means that God is still making a decision. So it doesn't mean that. It actually means for new actually is referring to the Old Testament word of no, which is actually intimate love. Because a man would know his wife. A wife would know her husband. It's intimate love. So God intimately loves us so much that he predestined us to what? His ultimate good, read it, is to be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's ultimate good. You want to know what God's end game is? What his plan is for us as humans? Is for, that we've been designed to be like Jesus. We've been designed to be perfect. Pre-Adam and Eve. That we have this echo that goes through our life. This striving for something better. Where does that come from? It comes from the fingerprint of God on our lives that says, you were created for something bigger, better, and more pure than this. And that car or that relationship or that family situation or that job or that house or that location is not going to give it to you. Because as soon as you get it, you're going to want something else. But let me tell you what will give it to you, what your ultimate good is to be conformed to the image of his son. That's what we've been predestined to. Ephesians 1 says, before the foundation of the world, God predestined us. What? So that we could be blameless and holy like Jesus. So, our immediate good is take this pain away. God's ultimate good is, no, I want you to become more like Jesus. And I'm going to do anything, use anything, bring anything about in order to make that happen. So does that mean that God uses sin? Yes. Does it mean that God initiated sin? No. Sickness and sin and everything else came from the fall. Not from God. Did God know and know how it's going to work out? Does God use that bad situation? Yes. God in control. All things work together for good. He has to. You can't have one thing without the other. God is in control. Otherwise, why pray? Why pray if God is not in control? Have you ever thought about that? If everything is a surprise, open deism to God, why are we praying? God, change that thing that ultimately you're not going to change because you're so hands-off. Amen. What? 
God changed their heart, even though changing their heart is down to their decision that you're not in control of. Please do it. Amen. What? That makes no sense. God changed their heart because we believe you are the changer of hearts because the gospel is your power into salvation. Amen. God, take this situation that I do not understand and it hurts, literally. And Father, I'm believing that your, your word says that this will be for my ultimate good and not just my good, but for those people around me and ultimately your glory. But it hurts, God. Help me in it. Amen. That is a prayer based on Scripture. God's ultimate aim is for you to be aligned with his ultimate plan for you, which is to become more like Jesus. And if you do not know Jesus this morning, where are you heading? What is your ultimate? Where is your goal? What image are you being conformed to? Well, if I can just have that situation, if I can have those looks, if I can have that body, if I can have that leisure activity, if I could have that bank account, then all my problems will disappear. No, 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 it won't because that does not satisfy your original design, which is to be like Jesus. Read it. All things work together for good. What good? To become like Jesus. This isn't an amazing verse. See, God is about taking a life and transforming it radically changing it let's just think for a second think about the most painful thing the hardest thing that you've ever been through something that's been stolen from you something that just makes you go I can't think about that God has in his will and ability and beauty the ability to take that and redeem it and use it powerfully and you may not see that but it will happen according to this promise which means that you and I can come out of life swinging. We can be unapologetic. We can be that person who goes and says, hey, you you don't know me, but can I pray for you? Because what have we got to lose other than praying that God's alignment would come into that person's life? We can come out swinging, knowing that God has ultimate control, that that kid that you're breaking your heart over, it's fine. And trust me, trust me, I'm not speaking from inexperience when it comes to difficulties and challenges and, and, and trying to control. It's challenging. But you can take your life, that which has been broken and hurt, and redeem it. Because what was Christianity founded on? It wasn't founded on Jesus skipping through Merry Meadows, picking daisies and just talking about love all the time, like hippie Jesus. That. It's not founded on that. It was founded on a bloody cross. Pain-filled torture that ultimately led to redemption and redeeming and beauty and ultimate good for millions. See, the very thing that we stand upon is a bloody, torturous cross. So painful that they actually had to make up a word to describe it. Excruciating, which is where we get, which is rooted in crucifix. You see, Satan's done a great job of taking something so torturous and crazy and painful and bloody and making it jewelry and tattoo. And yet our Christianity is founded on pain. And then there are preachers, and I don't like calling them preachers, speakers who go out and they declare that that pain is not part of the Christian life. It's mental at best, blasphemous at worst. Because it is. And so, 
As a pastor, my heart goes out to those of you who are going through that pain. But let me encourage you, there is an ultimate good. And by saying that, we're not belittling the pain. We want to stand with you and pray with you and love you. I think about the people in this congregation right now that we're praying for. I think about Tim and Jane and Tracy and, uh, and David. We prayed for you from this pulpit. We prayed for you each week. We pray for people who are constantly going through challenges and difficulties. Uh, Michelle Tribe's husband, all these. This is, this is sincere tragedy for many people. But we pray because we believe in a God who's in control. That even if he decides to take life away, then we still gain. <laughs> so we can, like, like Whitfield said, what did you say? I, I want to, um, uh, I'd rather... Oh, it's not burnout. It's not. Uh, he says something like, "I'd rather burn out than rust out," but it's not the word burn. I want to work hard with energy. See, Christianity doesn't promise a painless experience. I was reading this week of a lady called Candy Lightner. How many of you have heard of a lady called Candy Lightner? Yeah, in 1980, one of her beautiful 13-year-old twin girls was hit by a, a drunk driver. Within four days of that tragedy, within four days, she had founded Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Four days. Millions of people have, were affected within a few years of a non-internet lifetime. Four million people signed up in support. They changed legislation. She changed uh, the direction of the law when it came to drunk driving because drunk driving at that point was a murder that you could get away with. And so she changed it. And where did that get rooted in? It got rooted in that ultimate good, got rooted in a horrendous circumstance. I'm not belittling the circumstance. What I'm doing is shifting perspective onto the ultimate good. For those of you who know me well, you know that not one, one of my not-so-favorite pastimes is to go swimming in the lake. And there's a reason for that. Before you judge me, now just, just listen. Some of you don't like spiders. I don't mind spiders. Some of you don't like wasps. I don't flap my arms around like a lunatic when it comes to a wasp, which I just think is quite funny to watch. But, so thank you for that. It doesn't bother me. Unless you're, like, I'm not at the level Pete Hanningberg is. Pete puts his thumb on and just squashes them like that. And I think that's mad, but that's Pete. You know, we, we love you anyway, my friend. Ultimate good. Some of you, uh, apparently the most hated hockey team in uh, Canada, by poll, before you get all upset, is the Maple Leafs. You get really upset about that. Um, I don't understand why Leafs is spelled Leafs, but now I know I'm going to get emails for saying that. So uh, my email address is johncasorso at willowpotchurch.com. I don't like swimming in a lake. Oh, you must think, oh, it's because you're not a good swimmer. No, actually, I'm a really good swimmer. I used to be a swimming coach and was part of a swimming club for years. I love swimming. Actually, no, I don't. I don't really like swimming. I think I've just done it all so much. It's like I don't even like the look at a swimming pool anymore, but... I like floating around in them, but I don't like the lake because it just feels like, no, no, you're going to judge me, but here we go. I just don't like that you go from a really nice, warm, cozy beach into a freezing lake. It doesn't make any sense to me. And so this is what will happen is people are splashing around going, oh, Glenn, it's so warm. Come on in. No, it's not warm. You're lying to me. And I'll come in and go, there's nothing warm about this at all. That was warm. This is now cold and wet, and now I have to go and get covered in sand. I don't want to do it. I'd rather just sit there and throw rocks. Uh, not people, uh, other things. The reason is, 
is called the contrast effect. It's when you focus on something, the other thing changes perspective. And so there's a big study, University of New York um, asked a group of subjects a question. I've got the question on the screen, and it's this question. I'm glad I'm not, and then they filled in the gap. And they had to answer this question five times. They answered the question, a big group of people, I'm glad I'm not, whatever. I'm glad I'm not, whatever. And then they asked them about their present circumstances, and each and every time they showed that they had an increased sense of fulfillment when they were focusing on something that they were not. In other words, they, they were grateful. Then they asked a different question. I wish I were a. I wish that I was this. I wish I were a pastor. Not so much. I wish I were a, and they fill it. And then they asked different group of people. They said, well, what's, how do you look at your life now? And each time they looked at their own life in a negative way because they were looking at this saying, I wish I was this, and this is what I am. So here's this contrast effect. This is what it basically looks like. That which you are focusing on determines your attitude and your decisions in life. It's the hot tub after the snow, the snow after the hot tub. It it increases the contrast effect. So what's that got to do with this verse? And I'm going to bring this to a close. It says, when you listen, when you believe When you believe that all things work together for ultimate good, it redefines the bad things in your life. The worst day of your life can actually turn out to ultimate good. That's a different way of living. Rather than having life affect you all the time, it means you can live unapologetically. Having your life redefined, transformed, knowing that you have an ultimate good that's coming down the line. That you may never see, but it's a promise that it's going to come. This quiet confidence. Freedom and assurance. And in verse 30, this is his final reminder. And I'm going to stop it here. Those whom he predestined, he also called. You're wanted. You're wanted. This is an incredible passage of assurance. Go and be that which we have been called to be. Why? Because you've been called. You've been predestined. You've been chosen. And then he says you've been justified. In other words, that which was wrong is now righteous. You're in right standing with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. And then he said you're also glorified. It's a final reminder that we can trust him. This is an incredible promise. I'm in the process now of praying through what... You know, I'm believing and, and I've been, I'm sharing and I'm asking questions and um, I don't do this in a vacuum. I do this in consultation with people, different people praying and Pastor Phil about what are some of the steps that we at the South need to take in order to see more people come to know Jesus. The more, most primary thing is that we need at the South to be a group of people that are so assured that we are loved and called and kept that we're so assured that God is in control, that we can go into our lives, into our neighborhoods, into our workplace, into our businesses, into our families, into our circles, and we can swing at life hard. And we can talk to people and serve people and love people. If you have an assurance that your life is about being called, not about the business, not about the leisure, not about all those things. All those things are good, but they are not saviors. They're not your calling. They're there maybe to use, to talk to people, to share with people, to show people how great Jesus is. That's wonderful, but you are called to be like him. Can we go back, Joseph, to to verse 29? I just want to show you something. Really, really quickly. 
verse 29. Got got Romans 8, verse 29. See this? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We've been conformed to Jesus. Why? So that Jesus would be the firstborn of many brothers. The first of many others like Jesus. That would change a city within a week. That if we as a group really lived this verse, that we would be the firstborn among many brothers, that we would become the brothers and sisters who are like Jesus. We are assured of our salvation, assured that we have a God who loves us. We are assured that God cares and has an ultimate good for us. Wow, we would be bold. That's my prayer. And for some of you, you're not there. For some of you, you're, you don't swing out in life. For some of you, you're still on a journey and you're trying to figure out what Christianity looks like and we're glad that you're here. But I believe that I'm speaking truth when I know that you are struggling with this idea of control. And uh, it can be overwhelming when you look at our messed up world. And man, this, this, this causes a lot of questions. You go, well, how can God let this happen? How can God let that happen? And you know what? A lot of the time, my answer is, I don't know, but I don't see the answer as taking God out of the equation. In fact, things seem to get a lot worse. So I'm, I'm okay with holding with an open hands, and I've seen people before me who have gone through tragedy that I, don't, I can't even imagine. Personal and they live it with an open hand and they just seem to live life with a joy and a glory that is profound. That's my prayer for us as a church. Because people will see that in you and want to know more. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that your word stands resolute and strong even when we do not. That God is, in this passage you said, you remind us, you bear witness to the truth. And Lord, I thank you that the truth is that as Christians, that we are chosen, we're called, we're kept, we're loved. We have a glory waiting for us. And Lord, I pray that this week, that you would speak to us about how we can best live out our calling. And Lord, if that starts with conviction and we need to confess and come to you, then Lord, so be it. But Father, I pray that you would fill these good people, you would fill me, Lord, with a fresh sense of your presence. And that Lord, this week we would come out swinging. That Lord, that we would work hard. We would apply pressure and energy to our life knowing that God ultimately, that Lord, you have a good ready for us. And Lord, I pray that we would live in the comfort and the encouragement of that this week. As we start church in just a few minutes, real church, that Lord, that we would live out the truth of this passage. We love you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, that you died a horrible, torturous death that my sin was so despicable that Lord that 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 scene that that event Lord equates to my shame my sin my guilt 
But Lord, I thank you that when you died on the cross, your word says that my sin, my guilt, if I believe that my sin, my guilt, my shame dies with you, and newness of life enters in. Lord, for those in the room who don't live that, who don't know that, God, I pray you would draw them to yourself right now. Hallelujah. We're going to sing. And uh, I know the song we're going to sing. It's a beautiful combination.